Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number seven in our series for 2022. And today's date is Friday, March the 18th. First, I'll be talking to Zahir Jappy, the founder and CEO of Car Clarity, Australia's first true car loan platform with an easy online application process. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the impact of the war in Ukraine on the Australian and global economy. But now, let's talk to Zahir Jeppi. Well, Zahir, how did car clarity change the car loan market? Yeah, good question. I think our mission is to really change the way they experience uh, the process of when they search for a car, finance it and protect and eventually ownership. So want to journey towards that. Really, our first version of our product and our business is really about the finance and Essentially, my background in fintech, and I'm, I'm obsessed about cars, and I've had a lot of bad experiences when buying and financing a car. And because of our experience with finance, we really went on a mission early on to kind of change that experience. So the way we are changing is that people now have a place to go where they can confidently compare rural lending options in 60 seconds, which didn't exist prior. And it's, it's quite a different experience because we take into account the customer's criteria, the, the credit score, the, the income, you know, the car they're buying, and we actually give them real options up front. Well, none of these innovations are used with any car dealer. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, the car dealership space, the, the process of buying and financing cars hasn't really changed in, in 20 years. And what we're seeing in other markets globally is that there's a big shift towards more digital plays for buying a car and also financing. You know, there's a lot of very hot off the press kind of overseas models that are doing very well and listing for big amounts of money, get a lot of investment because customers needs uh, obviously more digital now. We're in, we're in a digital world, not going to one, and that's now moving to the car and car finance space rapidly. So, so what's your own background in the in the car financing space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I've, I've been in consumer finance probably for 14 years. I worked for uh, most recently, a lender called Plenty, which was formerly called Rate Setter. And when I was there, I actually helped build and, and run, I guess, our, our distribution channels for sales and got really involved with building the product for car loans and helping distribute it for Australia-wide for finance brokers and really got in, really got deep insight into how it actually works at that point. And then what I realized was that, wow, there's like a huge opportunity here where there's a disconnect between 
customer experience and expectations versus reality of what happens. That's fascinating. Now, how was your business funded? Yeah, so we've um, initially we raised a seed round last year. So we raised uh, $1 million and we had a new investor come on board um, called Equity Venture Partners. And we had some, we had a whole bunch of senior leadership executives in the fintech world. So we've got a couple of guys from Prosper. Some have left now. Um, we've got um, Harmony, which is Ben Taylor. Um, he was the first investor in Harmony. And we've got some really good experience uh, as investors and they're very actively advising us on, on the business and, and growth. Uh, so they're very much in tune with what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was a very um, easy transition. We, we kind of told them what we're trying to do and and, and asked them if they bought a car, financed a car before. You know, it was very instantaneous, the reaction to the problem that we're trying to solve. So it, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy, but the problem, people understood it very quickly. How is uh, Car Clarity tracking as a startup? Yeah, so very well. Um, and I think uh, during the, this last kind of, of four, three to four months of lockdown, car space has been kind to us, um, a lot of demand there. But, you know, since our last investment in the last year, we've seen a 600% growth in terms of revenue. And our team has grown uh, three times in that period as well. And you now with that, with the most recent capital raise, we're going to go uh, even, even, even faster, to be honest. So we're looking to grow at a similar rate over the next 12 months. So what's driving that growth? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things in the market at the moment that's really um, helping us get that growth. So I think the first thing is the, the people want an online experience for finding a car and also financing it. I think that's, that's we're in the right time for that product there. And I think secondly, you know, because you know, Aussies, we, we love cars. I think uh, I saw a stat, we read eighth in the world per capita for car ownership. And, and, and because of the COVID restrictions, we, we, we were an island, we can't go overseas. We've seen a lot of customers and families buying, you know, the car that they always wanted to maybe go on a weekend away and a four-wheel drive or camping. So we've seen a big shift for local travel and that's driving demand for particular things like youth and four-wheel drives have gone up. And I think at the moment, Leon, if you look at, if you look at buy, let's say Toyota Land Cruiser, good luck. Uh, you, you, you're going to pay more for a used one than a brand new one in the current market, which is very, very unique. Okay, so uh, so certainly Land Cruisers and SUVs would be hot in demand. Oh, yeah, yeah. But basically, uh, family kind of bigger cars are in demand and near new used cars are really hot because people can't find the new cars in stock. And that's what's really driving everything. Do you, do you actually use customer feedback? Yeah, 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 we do. We do a lot of customer interviews across the board regularly every month. I think we do about 10 customer interviews a month. And I think what we really realize is that for for a financial services business like Car Clarity, the interesting thing was when we originally started this process, we were like, we want to make it all digital, all online. And people want that privilege, not the privilege, they want that um, allowance to do that. They want to be able to do that online. But what a lot of our customers appreciate is actually talking to somebody once they've gone to our site, got their loan matches, but they actually want to speak to somebody, actually help them and get the right advice, which is something that really, about the start of the year, we realized that and customers' feedback was that they love the digital experience, but they absolutely love that we had somebody there taking care of everything for them as well. So that was a pretty cool insight that we learned. So does that mean you have a call center or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've got some um, in-house accredited finance specialists and essentially we, we actually give the customer the digital experience and then we speak to those customers and we actually help them get their loan approved. We actually help them get their loan settled and in some cases even even find a car for them and save them money. Do you actually have to work with banks about this? Yeah, so we work with a bunch of non-bank lenders. Um, the banks aren't very big players in Australia for car loans, but the, the, the sector is very rich with non-bank lenders and they're very competitive.
So we, we work very close with them uh, in terms of the credit teams and, and the, the sales teams to, to, to get better and better at you know, getting customers to them. So that, that would be constant, you'd be constantly having to deal with non-bank lenders. I mean, that, how different are they from the banks? Oh, it's, it's just definitely much more easier to deal with a non-bank lender than the bank. I think, I think you know, what, we, what we've seen with the non-bank lenders, they're, they're very hungry for growth and, and they're willing to work with business like Carclary to define and attract the right customers, which I think is, the, is, the, is, a, is a very good thing about it. And generally speaking, we're more agile. They have better systems and technology. They're not bound by leg, a legacy way of thinking or a legacy system. And you mean, so we find it really um, easy to work with non-bank lenders just purely for the fact that they're, they're really quick. It's probably the best way to explain it. Now, now tell us about the technology. Did you develop this yourselves? Yeah. Yeah. This is probably the, the hardest bit that we had to kind of solve for. So I don't know if you can imagine, Leon, you know, we have about 30 lenders that we have access to and every lender has got a different way of operating, right? They have their own different profiles for risk. They have their own different ways of, of assessment and documents are different as well. So the challenge for us was before we, like, this is kind of in 2019 when we we're kind of building the platform, we really had to figure out how, way how to create a consistent data set across all these different lenders. And that was probably the hardest thing for us from a tech perspective. And we actually cracked it and we built it. Now we can create a lender in our system within a day. And that's just by basically us looking at the credit policies and pricing and implementing that in our system. So how long did it take you to develop that? Six, six months. <laughs> and that was, so that was your, your team working on that for six months? Yeah, so, so it was actually me and one of my co-founders before we even raised a bit of cash. I, I actually sold my house which I just built to fund it. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of line. So we had a very pressurized time to make, make something happen. And pretty much I sat in a co-working space with him uh, in the city and sitting again, it was six months. We kind of just worked, okay, we're going to do this in six months. And we, just, we basically figured it out and we built it and we launched that product uh, not, not long afterwards. I take it there's a fair bit of observation of customers going on from what you're saying. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I think the behavior of our customers and there's a lot of things. So the behavior of customers on, on how they work on our site from a market perspective and, and a content and product perspective, but there's also the credit behavior as well. So we have a lot of data on our customers and we capture every single piece of data. So I think what will help us in the future is that data and utilizing that to give our customers a better experience, but also give our lending partners a much deeper and accurate customer as well. So you would have heaps and heaps of data on each customer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, you know, we're, we're, we're a, a lending platform. So, you know, like any other lending platform or business in Australia, we have a lot of regulatory compliance uh, things to, to tick off. And that requires a lot of information about the customers and the, and the decisions that we're making for these customers. So, you know, in a sense, we, we have a lot of data that we, that we can utilize to make the experience better for everybody. Well, Zaheer, I have to say, I don't know of any other car dealer that would work like you, like uh, like Car Clarity. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, we can actually help these dealers and, and, and allow them into our ecosystem at some point in the future. Because you know, like I said, Leon, you know, we have a lot of of, of activities that we do in to really make that experience better for everybody, not just us. So well, that, dealerships are definitely in, in in our in our future. Well, that's interesting because you're actually then looking at expanding Car Clarity. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, we are. So we're actually speaking to yeah, some uh, manufacturers about how car clarity can work with their dealership groups. And, you know, we have some ambitious plans in the next 12 months about how we're going to go into that market. And it's really all around, you know, we don't want to be a business that is 
I guess the word is disrupting, but we want to actually more make it more efficient for every customer interaction. So we've got a customer, a dealer, and you've got a lender. How can we make that that real that triangle there have a really good harmony in between all of it and make it quicker and a better experience for everybody involved? So that's that, that's definitely the medium term goal for us. And you know, I, I think uh, in next year, if we meet again, I can give you a much better, clearer picture of what's happened. <laughs> so car clarity would bring the, be the stable to bring them all together. You know, we want car clarity to be the home for car finance in Australia. That's that's our goal. That's our mission. You know, if you ask me right now, Leon, who do you think of when you think of car finance in Australia? There's nobody that comes to mind for a normal customer. And I think that's the opportunity for us there is create this trusted brand across all verticals that is known for, for car finance and make that better. And I think that is what really excites me about this business and the opportunity. And the funny thing is, we're a company, a country that's obsessed with car finance. Nine out of 10 cars are finance, but there's no real trusted brand driving that. And for us, that's an opportunity. Well, Zahir, that's fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you, Leon. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, uh, look forward to speaking in the future. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul Eslake, the war in the Ukraine has raised the prospect of um, the global economy and the Australian economy of uh, higher inflation, raised energy costs and slower growth. Uh, What's your view about that? Well, I think that's a reasonably accurate summary of the consequences of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia for the world economy and the Australian economy. We've seen a sharp jump in the price of crude oil. And although it doesn't matter as much for Australia as it does, for example, for Europe, an even bigger increase in the price of natural gas indeed for Australia increases in the prices of natural gas thermal coal and some food commodities like wheat and canola are probably a benefit, although it's not something in these circumstances that we should be crowing about. Australians will feel, of course, the impact of higher crude oil prices in the prices they pay at the petrol pump. And because transport costs are an important element of the price of almost everything that has to be delivered to Australia and moved around the country so that people can buy them, there'll probably be some additional effects on the price of a broader range of goods and services. Now, higher inflation normally means higher interest rates. But in these particular circumstances, central banks, including our own reserve bank, will have to think fairly carefully about the way in which higher oil prices will impact economic activity. In many ways, the impact of higher oil prices is actually similar to the impact of higher interest rates. That is, people are forced to spend more on petrol in the same way that higher interest rates force people with mortgages to spend more money servicing their mortgages, which leaves less money available to spend on other things, which tends to reduce demand and hence upward pressure on inflation more broadly. So although I think, for example, the US Federal Reserve is going to follow the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England in raising rates, as both of those central banks have done in recent months, The Federal Reserve may not be as aggressive in raising rates as markets had thought before the war broke out, 
And our Reserve Bank, which has been much more cautious about the inflation outlook than central banks in most other advanced economies, it's resisting market pressure to begin raising rates anytime soon, uh, will probably likewise continue to be cautious. I don't think the Reserve Bank of Australia will be starting to raise rates before August this year. And it will probably proceed fairly slowly after that for as long as oil prices remain at elevated levels. Uh, so, I mean, people were talking about four rate rises this year. I mean, the Commonwealth Bank certainly was, but uh, that's probably looking less likely. I, I think that's right. And some of those forecasters who were saying that the Reserve Bank might move as early as May or June, I think we're ahead of the mark, even if the war in Ukraine hadn't broken out. As I read what the Reserve Bank Board and the Governor have been saying, they want more evidence that wage inflation is going to have a three handle on it before they will be convinced, as they say they need to be, that underlying inflation is, in their words, sustainably within the 2 to 3% target band. It is in the target band at the moment, with the most recent reading of 2.6% over the year to the December quarter, but the model of the inflation process that the Reserve Bank has in its head says that if you've got 1% growth in labour productivity, which isn't very good, but that's what we seem to have, then you need wage inflation of about 3.5% per annum in order for consumer price inflation to be sustainably at about 2.5%. And the most recent reading on wage inflation put it at between 25 and 2.5%, which is, as they noted, is barely back in line with where it was in the four or five years prior to the onset of the pandemic. And there's only going to be one more read on wage inflation before the Reserve Bank's May board meeting and one more reading on CPI inflation. I think they'll need at least two more readings on CPI inflation before they think they're in a position to start raising interest rates. And that points to August rather than June or earlier. Uh, the Reserve Bank, when it's raising rates, normally does it in the middle month of each quarter, which coincides with the way they do their forecasts in the middle month of each quarter, which says that if there's to be a second increase in rates this year, that's probably going to be in November. And that gives me a total of um, 40 basis points from the current level of 0.1 up to 0.5 by the end of the year. Uh, depending what happens to inflation and economic growth longer term, uh, we could see more in 2023. But of course, who knows how long Russia's invasion of Ukraine will last and what its longer term consequences might be. Uh, the, the question of inflation is interesting because uh, now there are some forecasting that inflation could rise well above three and a half percent, could be five, six percent, maybe more. Well, and in some other countries, those levels have been reached. I mean, inflation in the US is now 7.5%. Um, in New Zealand, it's 59 In the euro area, it's 58 In Canada, it's over 5 But as the governor of the Reserve Bank has emphasised here in Australia, the headline inflation rate, that is without taking anything like petrol or construction costs out of it, is 3.5%. Uh, that's higher than we've been used to for a long time, of course, but it's substantially lower than in those other countries and there are some reasons for that one of them is that 
unlike Europe in particular and the United States and Canada, we're not seeing increases in household electricity prices, for example, they've actually been going down. Nor are we seeing quite the same pressure on dwelling rents across Australia as is evident in some other countries. And although food prices have risen, they haven't risen by as much as they have in, for example, Europe or in the United States. Now, that could perhaps change over the next six to 12 months. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. But it's not obvious to me that it's going to. We could certainly see higher inflation resulting from a sustained period of oil prices at for example, $150 US a barrel, which could happen if the world decides that it's not going to buy oil from Russia, which they haven't decided as yet. But if they decided to, we could certainly see Australia's inflation rate move above 4%, for example. But as I said before, because higher petrol prices have a similar dampening impact on economic growth to higher interest rates, uh, I don't think the Reserve Bank would be doubling up on tightening monetary policy if the main reason for inflation being say above four percent was higher oil prices right okay okay now the other interesting question is uh people are raising the prospect of us leading now to a 70s style stagflation yes that word's around and if you're referring to a simply to a combination of higher inflation and lower economic growth then perhaps the use of the word stagflation is understandable. But I think it's important to draw a distinction between current circumstances and what Australia, like many other advanced economies, experienced in the 1970s and in the 1980s. Uh, First of all, of course, we were talking about much bigger numbers. We were talking about inflation of 10% or more, and in some cases, unemployment of close to 10%. And although economic growth may well slow a bit, it still seems likely that Australia, like other countries, is going to have very low unemployment. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, for example, we were seeing the influx of the second half of the baby boom generation into the labour market at a time when lots of jobs were being eliminated through structural change, automation, and so forth. We're not really seeing that at the moment. Indeed, most people expect that the unemployment rate in Australia will have a three-handle on it within a few months and over the longer term. So in that sense, it is different. And Another key difference, of course, was the role that rapid increases in wages played in prolonging inflationary pressures in the 70s and 80s. You know, in, in Australia, we saw wage inflation in the early 1980s peak at 20% and continue at fairly high rates through the first half of the 1980s until the Prices and Incomes Accord brought that under control. Um, there's no suggestion 
that I can see for expecting that sort of increase in wage inflation to occur as a crucial ingredient in the inflationary process. And the final difference is that you know, part of the stagflation of the 70s and 80s was that both people and businesses had come to expect ongoing high inflation and they therefore behaved in ways when setting prices or demanding wages that made that outcome more likely a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy or vicious circle and again there don't appear to be any signs of that developing in Australia or in other economies at the moment and we have different institutions in particular an independent central bank uh, that makes a repeat of those circumstances far less likely. Now, uh, the other side of it is it could actually help Australia because uh, higher oil prices would be good for companies like, uh, say, Santos, Woodside, and also um, can lead to uh, increased demand for LNG. Well, yes, there are some companies who would benefit from higher oil prices, but Australia as a whole is a net importer of crude oil so and refined oil. So on net, higher oil prices in isolation are bad for the Australian economy. I mean, they're good for Canada because Canada is a net exporter of oil, but they're not good for Australia. And they're certainly not good for Australian households or the vast majority of businesses. Where Australia does stand to benefit is from increases in the prices of other energy commodities, particularly thermal coal, of which we are the second biggest exporter, although from a climate change perspective, that, that may not be such a good thing. And and LNG, of which we are currently the world's largest exporter, although much of our LNG shipments are under long-term contracts where the price doesn't necessarily reflect immediately movements in market prices, but yeah, we will benefit as an economy from those. There's a question as to how much of the benefits of higher coal and LNG prices actually flow through to ordinary Australians via the tax system, for example. Uh, coal producers typically pay higher taxes when coal prices are high and they pay royalties to the governments of Queensland and New South Wales on that. It's not clear that gas producers make the same contribution to tax revenue when prices are high. Um, one other important point to note is that Australia's wheat and canola producers will also derive significant benefits from the higher prices that are likely to flow from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, since both Russia and Ukraine are significant grain exporters and their production's likely to be disrupted by the conflict. Um, the downside, of course, of all of that is higher prices for ordinary Australians for bread and, and other products. But assuming the weather is kind to our farmers, then they're could be significant boosts to agricultural incomes in Western Australia, South Australia and New South Wales from bigger grain crops. Well, Saul, it's like those are all fascinating observations and thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure as always, Leon. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Vladimir Putin has set the clock ticking for possible defaults on about $150 billion in debt as the Russian economy slumps and its currency collapses under the pressure of sanctions, including on its foreign currency reserves. Russia's economy is fraying, and its debt is junk. Next up is a potential default that could cost investors billions and shut the country out of most funding markets. Warning lights are flashing as the government kick-starts a process of paying $117 million in interest on dollar bonds Wednesday, a key moment for key debt holders who have already seen the value of their investments plunge since Russia invaded Ukraine last month. The Russian government says that all debt will be serviced 
though it will happen in rubles as long as sanctions imposed because of the war don't allow dollar settlements. Failure to pay or paying in local currency instead of dollars would start the clock ticking on a potential wave of default on about $150 billion in foreign currency debt owed by both the government and Russian companies including Gazprom, Lukoil and Sparebank. Such an event will revive memories of previous crises, including Russia in 1998, when it defaulted on some ruble-denominated debt, and Argentina three years later. Russia is already a commercial pariah, crippled by sanctions and the exodus of foreign firms such as Coca-Cola Co. and Volkswagen AG since the war started. The government has responded with capital controls, restricting outflows of money to protect the economy and the ruble. Businesses and households are facing a double-digit economic slump, and inflation accelerating towards 20%. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine is threatening to derail the production of a range of medical devices from pacemakers to sleep apnea machines as the war exacerbates a global semiconductor shortage. A supply chain crunch of essential computer chips has already plagued the automotive industry, blowing out wait time for some new cars beyond six months. Now the healthcare sector is facing a similar crisis, potentially disrupting productions at companies such as ASX-listed sleep apnea machine maker ResMed and triggering price rises. Production of vital raw materials for the silicon chips, which are key components in essential healthcare devices including MRI machines, pacemakers and blood sugar monitors for diabetes, are concentrated in Russia and Ukraine. About half the world's supply of neon gas, which is used to fuel the lasers that print circuitry on semiconductors, is produced in Ukraine. And more than 30% of the world's palladium, which is used in the later manufacturing stages of semiconductors, comes from Russia. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the OPEC cartel's refusal to boost crude oil production, combined with recovering oil demands as countries relax COVID-19 restrictions, pushed February prices for both international refined petrol and average retail petrol in Australia's five largest cities to an eight-year high. The ACCC's latest petrol monitoring report reveals that daily average petrol prices in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth hit 182.4 cents per litre in late February 2022, which was the highest inflation adjusted or real level since 2014. Prices have risen further in the first two weeks of March. The last time prices in Australia were as high as they were in late February was in January 2014, when strong international demand, conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, and a lower Australian dollar-US dollar exchange rate pushed the real daily average petrol prices to 182.7. In July 2008, in the period before the global financial crisis, daily average prices reached a record high equivalent to 212.9 in today's dollars. Quarterly average petrol prices in the five largest cities were 162.8 in the December quarter 2021, an increase of 10.3 from the September quarter 2021. And spikes in fuel prices have fed into an increase in consumer expectations that inflation will rise over the next two years. Household inflation expectations jumped to 5.6% last week, its highest level since November 2012, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey. It is a prospect that consumers are finding disconcerting, despite Australia's strong economic growth. Confidence has been trending down since mid-February, but as consumers last week experienced firsthand the petrol hit to their wallets, combined with the war in Ukraine and the floods in Queensland and New South Wales, their confidence level plunged back into negative territory. And the cost of common dairy products could rise by double digits this year, according to cheese, yoghurt and flavoured milk maker Bega, as Australia's peak retail body warned business input costs are at a tipping point. Shoppers have been warned that they could be paying more for everything, from Tim Tams to Tip Pop bread, in the coming months as major food suppliers pressure to raise prices in the face of severe inflationary pressures. Sharp spikes in the cost of major commodities such as wheat and fats, coupled with huge increases in transport costs due to rising fuel prices, are likely to drive the price of some everyday goods to new heights and place the further strain on shoppers' wallets. 
These will include biscuits, bread, beer, canned goods, rice and fresh fruit and vegetables, with producers warning that prices on some products are set to increase for the first time in more than a decade. Baked beans and tinned spaghetti are among the 100 Australian staple food items that are expected to be hit by price rises of as much as 20%, Robert Giles, the Chief Executive of Canned Goods Producer SPC, said. The cost of living for Australians has come under increasing attention as inflation stalks the global economic recovery. The topic is likely to feature strongly in the run-up to a national election that's set to occur before the end of May. Over the weekend, the government said it would focus on households under strain in its upcoming federal budget due later this month. And Josh Frydenberg has shelled plans to bring forward the stage three tax cuts for middle and income higher income earners worth $17 billion a year in favour of more targeted assistance to ease cost of living pressures in the face of rising inflation. Broader tax relief and a freezing or cutting of petrol excise are options being considered by the federal government in this month's budget to defuse voter anger over the rising cost of living. Although the government intend to extend the $8 billion a year lower middle income tax offset to an end of year rebate of up to 1080 for lower and middle income earners, there is a growing school of thought within the government to scrap the extension and spend the money up front on relief. Otherwise, the money would not roll out until 2023-24. As the New Zealand government slashed its excise and road user charge to lower petrol by 50 cents per litre for three months on Monday, Prime Minister Scott Morrison all but confirmed further consumer relief would be contained in the March 29 budget. And the Reserve Bank says the supply shock from the Ukraine war that has triggered the spike in fuel costs will lead to lower growth and higher inflation around the world and preach patience on rates despite surging consumer prices. In newly released minutes to the RBA's March 1 board meeting, at which the cash rate was held at its record low of 0.1%, members said the economic implications of the war depended on the scale and duration of the conflict and the nature of any second round of fix. Economists now anticipate that headline consumer price growth will accelerate to 5% from 3.5% over coming months, as record fuel prices and severe flooding on the East Coast feed through to higher food prices. The war in Ukraine and the associated increase in energy prices had created additional uncertainty about the inflation outlook. Members noted headline inflation would increase by more than underlying inflation in the near term because of the effect of global developments on petrol prices. And the surging of price of building materials such as timber and steel will be exacerbated by the recent floods in Queensland and New South Wales, which have destroyed and damaged thousands of homes as well as the war in Ukraine. Timber prices have already risen by 50 to 100%, steel by 30 to 60%, and on concrete by 20 to 40%. The recent floods in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales have left about 5,000 homes destroyed and thousands of others requiring urgent attention. There's been a big spike in requests for subcontractors, from electricians and plumbers to tilers and roofers, in the past few weeks as people assess the damage on their properties. Builders who focus on insurance work are also run off their feet as their job books spill into next year. Association of Professional Builders co-founder Russ Stevens said the big jump in demand for building supplies after COVID-19 lockdowns, which pushed up the price of renovations and new builds, was only going to get worse after the floods and the impact of the war in Ukraine. And Superfund returns sunk about 1% in February and are now at risk of suffering their second negative financial year since 2020. New data from research group Superrating show the median balance superannuation option dropped 0.8% for the month as Russia's invasion of Ukraine increased geopolitical tensions and global supply chain pressures. Balance funds are still in positive territory for 2021-22, up 1.4%. Growth super options, where 77 to 90% of members' monies in growth assets such as shares and property, fell 1.1% in February, super ratings says. Super funds last had a negative financial year in 2020, one of only four since 1992. But if the war-induced weakness persists, this would be two out of three bad years. 
And the $76 billion superannuation fund HostPlus is the latest industry fund to commit to carbon neutrality by 2050 as it becomes an anchor investor in a Victorian renewable energy park to help offset closure of the state's giant Ilorn coal-fired power station in 2028. HostPlus, the industry fund for tourism and hospitality workers, has invested more than $1.2 billion in clean technology and climate solutions. It has now allocated $15 million to the 3,000 hectare Gippsland Renewable Energy Park, along with $8.5 million from the Commonwealth-owned Green Bank Clean Energy Finance Corp and Octopus Group, one of the world's biggest investors in clean energy, which has $6 billion deployed in 300 projects around the world. Octopus operates a Darlington Point solar farm in New South Wales, the biggest solar facility connected to the national electricity grid with a capacity of 330 megawatts. And two of Australia's richest men, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest, have emerged as key financial backers of, of one of the country's biggest renewable energy projects, a solar farm providing up to 15% of Singapore's electricity needs. Sun Cable said it had raised $210 million of new funding to push ahead with its signature clean energy scheme, the $30 billion Australia-Asia PowerLink development, with fresh funds ploughed in by the Atlassian co-founder and the Fortescue Metals chairman. The increased support from the founders of Atlassian and Fortescue Metals Group, respectively, is a ringing endorsement of the audacious project to export solar power from the Australian outback to the Asian financial hub. The venture aims to start supplying clean power to Singapore in 2027 and has attracted worldwide attention. It may get further momentum from heightened concerns around energy security as a result of the war in Ukraine. The capital raising provides enough funding for the project to hit financial close and paves the way for a set of renewable developments, with Sun Cable saying it is working on multi-gigawatt scale facilities, underlying the company's plans to become one of Australia's biggest clean energy producers. The solar project in the Northern Territory, which is estimated to deliver carbon emissions abatement of 8.6 million tonnes per year, will help power Darwin and Singapore. It includes the world's largest battery and a 4,200km high-voltage undersea cable from Darwin to Singapore, the longest in the world. Mr Cannon Brooks is backing Sun Cable just a week after putting on ice an $8.1 billion takeover bid for AGL Energy, pitched as one of the biggest decarbonisation projects in the world today. And the Federal Environment Minister, Susan Lee, has no duty of care to protect children from the negative impacts of climate change when assessing fossil fuel in projects, the Federal Court has ruled. Federal Environment Minister Susan Lee has successfully argued she does not have a duty of care to protect young people from climate change when assessing fossil fuel projects. A group of eight children launched the class action in 2020. The initial judgment agreed the minister had a duty of care when assessing fossil fuel projects. Experts say the children are likely to appeal against a decision in the High Court, but in the meantime, the ruling removes the duty of care that was established by Justice Mordecai Bromberg. The class action, led by teenager Anne Sharma, argued that the Environment Minister had a duty of care to protect young people from climate change and that this needed to be a consideration in the approval process for projects that would produce greenhouse gas. The original class action also argued that digging up and burning coal would make climate change worse and harm young people in the future. The earlier win, now overturned, led to headlines around the world. The world first case relied on common law principles to establish a duty of care and so was relevant to other common law countries including England, the United States and New Zealand. And the $14.5 billion inland rail link between Melbourne and Brisbane will help ease freight costs over the longer term, according to a new CSI report, which forecasts an annual $213 million saving. The rail link will also help ease road congestions and emissions by taking 200,000 trucks off the road each year, or 150 B-doubles for each train travelling between Melbourne and Brisbane. The report, paired before the recent spike in fuel prices, models the impact of the rail link, which, as an off-budget project, is meant to make a commercial return for its owner, the government. It is due to be completed by 2020. 
2027, and cumulative insurance claims from flooding across Queensland and New South Wales exceed $2 billion. The Insurance Council of Australia has received more than 135,000 claims across the two states. In New South Wales alone, there was an 11.8% increase in claims over the weekend. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Brendan Doggett, country manager for Sharesies AU, on how investors are now responding to market upheaval. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.